every experiment, grand or small, the principle applies. You are trying to discover something about the world. It could be your customers. It could be the nature of dark matter. And you, in advance, make clear what you will do with the results. Welcome to Foundstone Conversations, an ongoing series we're having with industry leaders uh, and business leaders, essentially having a chat with them about what they're seeing in their sector, in their market, and them sharing their, their real lived experiences, what they're seeing and hearing across their sector, to essentially share some of these, these key insights across the business and industry communities. And today we're fortunate enough to be joined by Professor Alan Duffy. Welcome, Alan. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Great to have you on. It's been, it's been uh, interesting over the weekend watching some of your previous interviews and, and conversations across the many years. Uh, it's certainly opened up my mind in terms of some of the parallels perhaps between the business and industrial communities and then what's happening across the universe and space. So looking forward to getting into that a bit more as we go through. But just a brief bit of context and correct me if I've got anything, any of this wrong, just for our audience, a bit of context of background of yourself. Alan's a renowned scientist and media communicator across astronomy, astrophysics and all things space. He's been leading the charge of creating, as I understand, mini universes on supercomputers to understand how galaxies form and to understand better the nature of dark matter. He's a member of the Leaders Forum that keeps the Australian Space Agency informed. Um, Alan's a member of the world's first dark matter detector in the Southern Hemisphere, if I've got that right. Um, and it seems to be based in right, right in our very own backyard in Stall, Victoria. So I'm interested to hear a bit more about that. Alan's the Director of Space Technology and Industry at the Swinburne, um, at Swinburne University. And he's also founder and CEO of MDetect, which we're going to hear a bit more about um, as we go through. So Alan, it sounds like it certainly, certainly keeps you busy involved in all these different things absolutely it's it's i just can't say no to fun interesting challenges or problems but mercifully i've uh, an incredible team behind me in all of those endeavors so uh it's, it's thanks to them that i can achieve the success that i have uh, assuming that's any at all but yeah, yeah very good it's, it's a very very uh, humble of you um so let's let's get straight into it i think as i understand in your work with as Director of Space at Swinburne and CEO of MDetect, um, if I've got it right, uh, some of what you do or a lot of what you do is essentially um, being a commentator out there across science within the media um, is really trying to simplify what's happening in, in space and the likes of dark matter um, and then connecting all those, all those minds and all that experience with actually real-life business problems and industry problems here on Earth. So have I got that right? And if so, can you chat, chat a bit, bit about that? Yeah, that's right. That's, that, I think it's, it may come as a surprise the, to hear, but my, my, um, one of my passions over these years has been the communication of, of science, the translation of the latest discoveries, innovations in technology and the like into to everyday uh, um, uh, concepts and indeed just making it relevant for people. And it turns out that's exactly what is required when you try to bring advanced technologies to the marketplace, to industry. You have to understand the way to, to make that link, make it relevant and do the hard yard yourself. If you're, if you're the expert in this latest advanced discovery or technology, then you know, it's up to you 
to make the connections obvious to others. Uh, how could anyone else know that technology as well as you to understand how it could fit to their applications? And so I think in that regard, the, the onus being on the, the scientist, the technologist to translate it and make it relevant and, and place it in context uh, is, is fitting. And certainly in my case, it's been uh, a very enjoyable uh, uh, translation of my own personal activities in the communication uh, to, to be more, as you say, as part of the, the Space Technology and Industry Institute at Swinburne, um, that external partner uh, or external facing partner, I should say. So it, we, we basically have this, this motto that the, um, the institute, the vision is simple. It's, it is to, to support companies and communities in addressing their problems here on earth through space. The problem we find is that most people aren't aware of how useful space can be for those activities. So almost the very first thing that you do in that, in that effort is to empower organizations and individuals and community groups and the like about the ways that space has helped others, the way that space activities can play a very real and indeed everyday uh, lived experience here on earth. And that's, that's a very, um, exciting challenge, it, but, but it is something that must first be done before you can begin to then talk about the potential solutions, because it's also empowering the user of those ultimate technologies to understand how it might fit their specific problems. Again, I might know the technology uh, better than, than those I'm speaking to, but they'll certainly know their problems better than I. So it's about trying to meet together and find commonality of language, of, of uh, background and experience and that practice of of communication has has served me well in that role yeah that's that's brilliant and that, and thank you for the context there i think i think um some of the some of the people that we we speak with um in, a, in a, perhaps an advisory role so business leaders industry leaders ceos boards uh one of the one of the key areas probably they they grapple with and have grappled with for a number of years is um, is really um, putting themselves in the in the space of, of unknowns and ambiguity, hmm. beginning to start to feel comfortable in that space. And I suppose that has probably been accelerated over the last 18 months with, with the world we've lived in, hasn't it? Uh, so I actually see see one of the one of the, the the main learnings that industry and business can actually learn off people like yourself and 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 Swinburne and in M Detect, which you're involved in, is firstly actually the mindset around how you start to get comfortable with the unknowns. Um, now, can you tell us a bit, diving straight into it here, can you tell us a bit, bit about perhaps that, that approach you've taken over the years and then perhaps discuss this, the, uh, the, the nature of dark matter, the great unknown as, as I understand it, and how that perhaps could, could feed into more business and industry mindset improving in that sense. Yeah, so this is the, the nature of science is to, to plunge headfirst into the unknown. But you don't do it uh, blindly. You don't do it by, by happenstance. It's a very coordinated, uh, measured approach. It is, as you say, a mindset, uh, the, the, method, the scientific methodology. Uh, essentially, it's about ensuring that whenever you approach uh, a new area, an unknown topic, you first must this can be so challenging because you just want to leap head first in, you know, feet first in, but you have to first outline what are the, um, the, the parameters of the problem, try to define it as best you can, and then begin to be very critical to yourself 
about detailing what the um, the kinds of questions you want to ask of that problem and the kinds of answers you might expect to receive and, and what you would you do based on the answers in advance before you get them. And just as, a, as an example of this, say um, you're about to launch a new, um, you know, a fundamentally a, a new product for your, for your business and you're, you know, you, you've got a, you know, an app in mind. Um, it's never trialed before. It's a, it is a big unknown. But there's a you know there's, there's precedent. You can you can begin to put a bit of a scaffold around that. Ask yourself what are the key um, insights you want to gain from this this trial. See everything as a as a um, as an as an experiment in the same way that we do when we try to find this this dark matter. Try to find the questions that you can get meaningful answers for. For example, uh, the the you know user engagement. One can easily measure that. What are you going to do? With that, if you see an uptake of you know twenty percent um, based on on you know perhaps the the directions it, it takes inquiries, is that is that success? Is that mission success? Is are you going to move forward? If it's fifty percent, would you you know pledge to double the investment in you know into that product? In other words, set yourself the the. The, the definitions of success and in, and in the scientific concept context for us, that's at what point do we actually, you know, we, we write up our reports. When do we claim a detection? When do we claim success? What do we do with the marginal detections and results? You have to be very clear before you do the work, what you will do with the outcomes, because the moment you get those outcomes, now you're committed, you've invested. And you're emotionally, we're all humans, you are emotionally tied to those outcomes. And you will find if you haven't, in fact, you, you, you'll find this when you've committed to it in advance, you'll start to tease on the boundaries. You'll be like, oh, I think this is actually, you know, it was quite a good success. And that's a, that's a tentative signal. I can see a little bump in the, in the, wig, in the, in the curve there. And, you know, maybe we could claim, you know, you begin to, to push it because of course you're emotionally invested. So I think you have to be analytic. You have to go in, to these kinds of decisions into the unknown with a very clear uh, uh, discussion with you, with your team, um, with those undertaking the trial and perhaps other stakeholders as the case may be. In our case in science, it's with our funder agencies. We have to be very clear to them. This is the anticipated result. If we see this, it means X. If we see this, it will in fact mean Y. Here's why we can plunge into the unknown because X or Y, they're both valuable. Right? These are both great insights that we can gain. You have to be very clear what you will do in the case of the null result. And that, of course, is very helpful when you're plunging into the unknown because <laughs> maybe you will discover it, maybe you won't, but you have to at least outline what both paths um, um, uh, imply and your actions that you will take based on them. And we are so used as a society to only taking the positive in the sense that we, we have a a successful field trial or a successful deployment of a, of a new product, away we go. We're far less comfortable with the discussion of what failure and failure in the context of the unknown is, is a very real and likely chance. And it just means that the model you have in your head of how the world works, well, it's not right. You know, and that the world doesn't owe you anything to be right. So you have to prepare for the fact that you're, you're going to get this null result. And I think the businesses that embrace that mindset working through the possibilities of the decision trees, as it were, and committing in advance 
to what they will do based on the outcome of that experiment and see every action as, as an experiment. You know, maybe it's not as um, grand and all-encompassing as you know, a multi-year search for dark matter, but that's okay. I mean, every, every experiment, grand or small, the principle applies. You are trying to discover something about the world. It could be your customers. It could be the nature of dark matter. And you, in advance, make clear what you will do with the results and what you accept as success and what you deem as failure and what that implies for your actions to follow. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I think, I think that is what you've talked through there around experimentation they're getting comfortable with failure from, from, a, from a business sense. You know, executives and boards, I, I do believe, can learn hugely from that, from the science community. And I think that there is, like I've heard you talk, talk about before, there is huge potential of partnership for industry to learn from the way you approach, you know, one of the greatest unknowns. And then vice versa, to, to partner perhaps in a financial sense for a financial outcome for business here on earth. So for our, for our uh, general business uh, viewers out there, dark matter, I've been doing a bit of, bit of research just, just recently on this before our conversation and, you know, listening to, you, to people like yourself and Brian Cox around perhaps what is the nature of it. So I think to be helpful, you know, one of the greatest unknowns, as I understand, is dark matter. It'd be helpful if you could just define in your experience the nature of it and what it perhaps could be. Yeah. All right. So there, uh, thanks to astronomy, we, we can see the motion of distant stars pulled by the gravity of an unseen companion. And based on their motions, just how much they're um, being held by this enormous amount of gravity, we can infer that there's about five times more of a fundamentally invisible component of our, of our universe, a new kind of matter than everything we can see put together. So five times more of the universe the matter in the universe is, is invisible. There's a new form of matter, which we're calling uh, dark matter. The, um, we know an extraordinary amount of, of where it is, how much of it there is through these, these astronomical probes, and there's many others I could go into. But mm -hmm. suffice to say, we're at an incredible point in our, in our history where we know that the, the, the things that we can see, for example, in the image behind me, all those stars, right? Mm -hmm. And those are the tip of the iceberg, the vast amount of material in the universe is, is below the waterline, completely invisible. And the actual proportion of the iceberg that's visible versus what's underneath is, it happens to be cosmic coincidence, but exactly that ratio of, of visible material, um, atoms like you and I, and this dark matter. So detect, So the, the, the reason that dark matter has, has escaped our notice until now, and indeed that the dark matter is all around us, it's it, in fact, the, the galaxy itself is embedded with a vast cloud or halo of the dark matter and it's that gravity of the the dark matter that holds the the galaxy together the um as we move uh, around the galaxy spins uh, takes about 250 million years to take one orbit of our galaxy we're moving through that dark matter and if you've ever driven um you know you know at high speed you know, on the on the freeway you put your hand out the window you can feel a headwind that's you driving through the air and you can feel that wind in the same way we going through this cloud of dark matter means we get a headwind of dark matter um, mm. and it's rushing through us and there's something like a few hundred million particles of dark matter going through about that give or take about your eye 
right? So each and every second. So you've never noticed this. Um, and, and if you are seeing something streaming in your eyes right now, you, you, you want to get that checked. So we've got a, a bit of a conundrum. Why is it that there's so much out there and it's moving through us so rapidly? And yet, because we know what our speed through it is, and yet we don't feel it. And that's because this dark matter is, is effectively a ghost. It, it, it doesn't um, interact with normal material. It flies straight through solid walls, you, and indeed, of course, the entire Earth without collision, or at least we hope occasionally it can collide because that's what we're doing with these large dark matter detectors. You mentioned uh, Sabre, the, the world's first dark matter detector in the Southern Hemisphere. It's a very large um, uh, sensitive uh, crystal, basically. Uh, it looks like a salt, you know, beautiful looking crystals, but essentially salt that you might put on your, your chips. But the, um, the intention is that the dark matter might occasionally collide with uh, a real atom, send it flying, and that atom in turn um, emits a flash of light in, the, in these crystals. So that's the name of the game, is to take a very sensitive set of crystals uh, uh, and basically put them in the dark and look for when they flash when struck by this, this ghost. And the challenge is we have lots of things raining down on us from space that, that collide with, with us, with the crystals called cosmic rays or muons. And uh, these form a, a blind, an otherwise blinding background to the, the experiments. We have to take it deep underground. Uh, in the Sabre case, this is at the Stoll Underground Physics Laboratory. So this is a, 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 a essentially a very large um, canyon now excavated mm -hmm. at the bottom of the Stoll Gold Mine in Victoria. And there, with a kilometer of rock between your detector and the particles from space, you, you, um, you hope that most of those particles are blocked through that rock. But the dark matter, this ghost is able to fly straight through and, and still hit your detector unimpeded. So that's part of a truly global effort. I mean, there are dozens of, of enormous facilities looking for this dark matter. If you detect the dark matter, you at a stroke have explained five times more of the universe than all of, of science's efforts to date, where we've only focused on that one small sector that makes up the atoms. What does that imply for for industry, for business, uh, while the discovery of dark matter may be of, of um, insight and use, and certainly in advancing our, our physics theories, it may do, uh, it may be akin to when we split the atom and gain a subatomic understanding of nature, right. um, which of course unveiled new medicines, but also of course had a, had a darker side with nuclear weaponry. You know, one may, may expect that that kind of deeper understanding of nature unveils new potential um, exciting uses. However, I think it's much more likely in the short term, it's the search for dark matter that ends up informing industry, aiding industry. We have entire new generations of, of technologies coming from that search, exquisitely sensitive detectors, material science and the like, as well as data processing techniques. All of these of great relevance for industry. Uh, and, it, and it is indeed as part of that industry uh, focus think that the, the Dark Matter Center, of which I'm a part, it's led by Professor Elisabetta Barbario of University of Melbourne, is going to have a, a great impact in supporting those advanced uh, um, industries that, that have sensors or um, digital twin or uh, just even data processing challenges. And of course, my own uh, uh, small company is, is an example of, of one of those technology spin-offs. Yes, well, it's brilliant to hear the examples that you've talked through right in our own backyard, Stall Victoria. I wasn't aware of that at all. Um, so, you know, that's, I'm sure, one, one, one example of many, even within, our, within Australia, 
And then you mentioned mentioned Mdetect, which your mm. which your founder and CEO. And I think, as I understand, that is an organisation that's come out of fruition from uh, research into dark matter. If I'm if I'm correct in that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's a bit of an unusual um, uh, story in that it's so as I mentioned, those, those cosmic rays, those muons. Uh, very high energy, they can travel up to, indeed, they can even travel more than a kilometer underground, but eventually they are stopped um, by dense, dense materials preferentially. So um, we were building a new generation of, of um, low cost, uh, low power, essentially zero infrastructure muon detectors to act as a way to uh, alert the, the larger dark matter uh, uh, detector that muons were were raining down and, and to essentially to act as, as a potential veto and just to learn a little more about them um, trying to understand them as the background to get rid of now one man's trash is another man's treasure and it turns out that the muons are because of their highly penetrating nature they are exquisitely uh, um, uh, well aligned to scanning through large volumes of uh, soil of, of rock uh, in ways that just simply aren't possible with almost any other geophysics technique. So the idea is that um, MTTech was then uh, underwent uh, the Swinburne Accelerator uh, program, which is a wonderful um, uh, launch pad that takes scientists and, and turns them into people a little more able to, to work uh, with, with the realities, I think, of a, of a startup. And we can certainly talk to that. But mm -hmm. the idea was let's take that technology which is uh, revolutionary in its, in its um, performance at, relative especially to its, its cost per unit and deploy those underground and now use the muons which constantly rain down from, from space, from, from the atmosphere, penetrate through the rock, just put these detectors under a region of interest mm -hmm. and you'll take an X-ray like scan of that environment um, some clever uh, uh, 3D inversion technology later, you can essentially uh, take that X-ray scan and, and create a, a true 3D density map of the underground region. And right. there's really nothing can stop these muons. So you, you, you have a, uh, an incredibly powerful, naturally occurring uh, scan and, and you know, going through hundreds of meters of rock is, is absolutely no problem for these muons. So mm -hmm. it really permits a very interesting depth um, but we're also exploring even shallower um, uh, sites, you know, just a, perhaps a 10 meter depth as well for more construction related activities, but, but the obvious use cases in mining. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, so, so that example in itself. So if I've got that right, so the, the research team across um, Swinburne mm -hmm. um, is essentially engaged, you know, through yourself and other people with industry. And that is then potentially an organization that is growing creating industry uh, jobs um, and a financially stable base to then grow industry within Victoria. You... Oh, absolutely. We, we've just taken on our first uh, first investor round, going in for one of the, um, uh, the, the government schemes that match um, the, the funding and try to take this kind of technology and, and move it to commercial-ready application. We really see this as a, uh, a very growing area of focus as more customers become aware of the potential for muons mm -hmm. to reveal the underground uh, environment, the subsurface structures, let's say for construction or, or uh, for mining, uh, 
really the, the challenges about the scaling up of the units, and we're, we're fortunate uh, that the, the unit cost is, is low. It is a new approach sure. um, to these kinds of, of detectors. Uh, but it's also a challenge to the mindset of, of sectors which are, for good reason, wary of, of you know, brand new, unproven, as it were, technologies. Or certainly, you know, when you start to talk about, you know, we use particles from space to, to mm -hmm. scan the foundations of your skyscraper. I mean, that's going to, you know, you're going to get a, a, a certainly a, a, a query eye raised. But I, I think at the same time, it can be by the simple novelness of the approach, we're also getting doors opened as well because it's it's fundamentally cool, it's fundamentally new. So I think the challenge uh, that we are at, and this is where these kinds of government um, uh, grants are so critical, is the use case development. The, the, with our industry partners, and we're very fortunate to have, have several now, uh, testing, deploying, verifying for their specific commercial needs that this is a product that uh, uh, answers those, those challenges. And I think that that's something that in science, we so often uh, don't carry the solution all the way to that end, end point. I think there's a, perhaps, an, uh, perhaps we're just not as aware in, in science of the incredible cost and challenge and effort to taking something that can solve a problem to something that can solve a commercial problem. And I think that that is a very different um, uh, area. And I, I would love to see more scientists and technicians get really get their teeth into that second challenge. Yeah, the, 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 what you've talked through there, the way I see perhaps from an industry point of view in our, in our world um, with business and industry leaders, I think the more that they can understand how, you know, organizations and, and people like yourself and then organizations like Indetect, which are now growing and evolving, or they can become aware of how they can potentially solve a commercial, commercially viable problem. I think the better. And I, I, the the conversations I've heard you involved with, I do believe there's definitely more opportunity there. And I think you use the example of Israel. If I got that mm -hmm. right, Israel, there's a there's a there's a less divide between research and then industry. Can you perhaps talk us about? So if you're a head of a construction organization or head of a head of your mining organization within Australia, how could you, I mean, what sort of problem could be relevant? Because I'm sure industry leaders are thinking, well, this problem might not be relevant to what Alan and the team are looking at. Mm -hmm. um, is there any kind of ways they could, they could think about that? Yeah. So just as a general, uh, um, I guess, to, to, to understand the potential ways that it might help in a general case, if you have a, uh, material underground, you know, length scales, meters across uh, that uh, has, has a different density to the material around and you want to know where it is, you want to, and particularly if it's, if it's changing, that's something that muons can do very well. An example of this in the construction sector is when you're uh, digging foundations and, and indeed in particular even, even basement layers, car parking and the like, you will place some very large boreholes at a depth of say, you know, 40 meters, you'll be excavating down to, to say 10 or 15 meters. And lo and behold, you'll hit any number of boulders uh, amidst the clay and silt. And, and it is just an extraordinary cost to your, um, to your, your uh, build to now have to try to, to excavate these out. It would be much better where you're able to see these, these um, denser rocks amidst the clay and it turns out that the depth of those uh, foundational uh, 
uh, piles that you initially uh, drilled, drop a few of these detectors down there. They'll essentially, you know, the, the muons will shine through, um, through the rocks and boulders, they will be illuminated and uh, the detectors deep below will, will spot them. And in fact, these, these detectors are sufficiently cheap. You just leave them down there. You don't even worry about them. So in that sense, you could help the excavation. You could, of course, also for mining, the classic case is mineral exploration, where you take a, uh, uh, you, you very much complementary to existing probes. You're trying to map out the density structure, the different layers, the lithography of the, um, of the site. One could also imagine cases where, for example, in, in the iron uh, ore sector where they're uh, excavating and they come across uh, clay pods. These are very large pockets of, of clay. They add um, essentially penalty cost to the, to the tonnage of the ore as these materials are mixed in. And they're at just an, essentially the size of about an SUV. And yet these things are still being missed. And again, we have a, it, it's the opposite uh, sense now, rather than, the, um, the structure of interest acting almost uh, casting a shadow as it were by, by blocking some of the muons, the, the clay tends to be uh, easier to see. So uh, against the background, so we end up seeing a hot spot as it were. So right. the, the, the approach of the muon um, technology is very much driven by uh, an understanding of the physics, but also from, from our point of view, but also you know, trying to understand what are the actual real pain points for, for the industry sectors? And until you have the open and, and often very frequent and, and long standing conversations with them, you don't actually understand really where, where the challenge is. It becomes a, ca a case of what is, the, what is the nice to have versus the one I'll pay for, right? And I think you know, there's a lot of technological innovations that are being uh, discussed and, and trying to be translated out of, of the research world that fit very much in the nice to have category. But I think it's only when you've spent time with, with companies and you, you've, you've deployed on ground with them and you're actually on site with them and you've got you know, uh, mud on your boots that you're beginning to understand actually what's the pain point here and what's, what, what are they going to be wanting to invest real money to resolve. So I think that's a very different uh, mentality required. And I think it's something that we, uh, in, in, in the case of Israel, you, you mentioned, is a wonderful example where the very close connection between university and industry, and, and often on campus, it's, it's very hard to tell the difference. Where, where literally did the university building end and the, the industry partners area um, commence? And that's that kind of closeness allows the real pain points to be identified at the start of the research journey, not when you've got a, a technology you hope to translate and now you're looking for a solution, yes. uh, a, a problem to solve, sorry, with this solution. So I think, mm -hmm. I think we want in Australia to see a much closer alignment. I'm very lucky with, with the case of, of MDTech. We've got um, great support still from, uh, from uh, Swinburne in that regard, an ongoing uh, you know, close relationship. And that's a that's a wonderful example, and I, I really hope Australia sees the Israel model, sees the, the um, West Coast of, of the US in particular models, where you're, you're finding the co-locating of, of industry on campus, but also the other way around, of, of researchers, and in particular uh, cohorts of PhD students on industry. Um, and, and, and that's... Hmm. Then you break down the barriers, and then you have real discussions, real problem identification, and then you can solve them.
Yeah, I think that the uh, recent headline in the Australian, which I was doing a reading, bit of reading on, which featured yourself and some of the organisations we use space to help us on Earth. I think that's a brilliant example of, as, as you've talked through there, starting with a very uh, exploration-based mindset and willing to go into the unknowns from dark matter and space, you can draw a direct line there between the, those two industries you've talked about, mining and construction, both from a solution point of view, of, well, well, before that, like you said, what, do you, what problem I'll be solving, solution to then financially viable. So I think that there's a, that was a blind spot for me personally in, in business advisory of the, mm. of the immense opportunity between the work you're doing across space and how there's direct lines. Um, I think, you, you know, you've talked talk through the Israel example. I think another example you talked about in the previous interview was Wi-Fi. As I understand, that was originally developed for, for space in that, mm -hmm. in that but you look at Wi-Fi now and, and what it's brought us here on Earth. Yeah, look, that was that's a that's a really interesting example. It's one of the great success stories of Australian uh, so-called blue sky fundamental research uh, being translated. And uh, the the story is John O'Sullivan was searching for exploding black holes, as predicted uh, by the, by the late great Stephen Hawking, and mm -hmm. um, using a radio uh, telescope and the challenge he was faced was the signal, the anticipated signal was being uh, smeared out as the, as the, the you know, potential uh, radio waves were traveling through space. And he came up with a very clever way to, to, re to essentially recombine the signal and get rid of that distortion. Now that was, uh, you know, improved his search abilities, um, but was that, you know, ultimately wasn't able to, to detect these, these postulated black holes. Mm -hmm. uh, a good example of a null result that he was able to write up as a, as a sort of, and then an upper bound on, on the kinds of, of claims that Stephen Hawking was making. Sure. But the technology, that, that idea of, a, of boosting the signal, so to speak, of, of, re, of reconstructing it to aid the search is exactly the kind of, of um, technique you need to reconstruct the signal of a Wi-Fi signal after it's bounced around a house a few times uh, and smeared out on the way. And we, uh, of course, then have greater, greater um, uh, coverage as a result. However, the, the technology was actually used very widely before the CSRO then went to those companies and pointed out that there was a patent and that, they, that, that there was now royalties due. So it's a very different approach to what we often think of as translation, where there's a very uh, close and, and IP frank discussion in advance and, and, and everything is very neat and tidy. So one of our greatest success stories was essentially almost a, um, a spreading of the, of the solution and then uh, running around and, and ringing the, um, right. the, the right. bell. So it was a little bit of a different approach. And, and I think we want to be, we want to celebrate the success of that and be inspired by the success of that, that uh, innovation. But we also want to be aware that that is not a system one can build up uh, a scale up as, mm -hmm. a, as an architecture to translate technologies. Instead, what we really need to do is uh, have the range of, um, well, in fact, what we really need to do is, is have empowered figures within the university to go out to companies and vice versa, work in each other's space. And then it's from those people that we'll see the the knowledge they have of solutions internal to one or the other be offered and shared 
Yes. And then, of course, the collaboration builds, and then you have those discussions about royalties and licensing. But I think it's it's important to recognize the fact that uh, it is it is exceptionally hard for one group alone to have insight into the other's organization, and much less when it comes to something as as precious as IP. When, of course, for good reason, we don't openly disclose a lot of these these kinds of things. So I think it's a is a challenge, and we know as as essentially bottom of the OECD tables uh, uh, in terms of our ability to translate successfully our technologies to market, we must do better. And I'm very pleased to see that government is beginning to discuss very, um, very serious amounts of funding to, uh, to try to see more of that technology translate and to build a, right. uh, an architecture that supports it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, well, well hopefully, in term, well, not hopefully. The space is one of the one of the six priorities, isn't it, in, in the federal yeah. government modern manufacturing? Um, and I, I saw some of the figures. If I got got them right, you know, the space industry one point one trillion globally by twenty forty, and that probably is a conservative number. Just changing changing gears a bit in terms of um, your own mindset, Alan, because going back, I think that business leaders can learn a lot from perhaps what. Your own mindset over over the years and 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 today very current. You talked about you know that the the willingness to to um, to so called fail in 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 along the way with what we're doing, be be willing to experiment. With your background, your own personal experience, what's what's helped you and what is helping you now going forward? Um, with that, the big unknown of dark matter, right down to then you you leading the likes of Inditect. What is helping you on a day-to-day -day basis to keep that consistent mindset and helping navigate through the unknowns? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I think it comes back to the intentionality behind the work we do. In other words, if we try out a new uh, prototype design, for example, in Emstech, mm -hmm. we have very clear guidelines as to what the the testing procedure is and what we will do with the results that we, we receive. In the case of, of dark matter, it again is, is an eye to the competition globally. Again, this is a very competitive race. Um, mm. We are aware of, of others' efforts and we try to incorporate their knowledge and findings, but we also stay true to the vision of, of the detector where we, we believe there's real unique value in doing it from the Southern hemisphere. Mm. And it's about doing, uh, um, Although there's competition, there's uh, no one entity can succeed on its own. So all of these experiments, in some way, complement one another. So perhaps it's it. So perhaps one of the points of difference coming from science um, uh, and now trying to go into to industry is I come from a legacy of always looking for collaboration, always seeing every other success as the potential uh, way to inform my own. And, mm -hmm. and in that way, not getting discouraged by, um, by, by the activities of others or the success of others, because essentially you can learn from it because mm -hmm. we share that information and, and we share it willingly and often do collaborate with our uh, mm -hmm. competitors in other experiments. In fact, if you look at the co-authorships, they're, they're, you know, it's, it's, it's incestuous. Mm -hmm. But that translates knowledge and that shares knowledge and it means best practice is, is pushed. And it means we're also, it's a self-correcting uh, um, uh, organization in that regard as, as an endeavor into the unknown where we really do check each other's work and we inform and we critique each other's work. 
the challenge of collaboration between competitors in industry is not an, this is not a new insight, of course, mm -hmm. but it is the fundamental dilemma. How do you have a, um, a marketplace clearly with uh, a, as great competition as possible? You're going to drive the best outcomes um, within a regulated sense, but you, know, you still want to have and foster collaboration in particular when you're, you have a, a relatively nascent, let's use the space example, a relatively nascent um, industry sector. We must cooperate with each other and, and collaborate, but you still want to retain the best of, of what competition brings and breeds. So it mm. is, you know, I, I haven't the answer, right? This is a systems architecture approach. However, I do think it's clear that uh, fostering the communication and, and the um, shared sense of a national effort and space is something that that can uh, uh, engender, that is perhaps the best way to bring the best of the competitive spirit with what collaboration and cooperation brings in terms of scale. It's suffice to say, it's, it's not an easy one to crack and we haven't done mm -hmm. it in science by any means. We are, it's a self-correcting process and we're trying to always get better at it. Yeah. Um, but I see in the likes of groups like Atlassian where they support uh, a national approach, they see it on the national scale. I mean, they're thinking global from the start. Mm -hmm. So that, that, you know, that's, perhaps how companies should Devil. see themselves if they act globally, think locally. Yeah. Um, you know, we have that or cooperate locally. We can at least see our national competitors as not the um, true competition if we are already envisaging a global approach, but rather as our most obvious first collaboration points. And that's very challenging to do. I'm, I'm saying it like it's easy. Uh, I appreciate it's challenging, but I think it's the only way we can succeed when we have a relatively small uh, market sector. And we, and we look to, as you mentioned, a trillion plus dollar value by 2040 for the global space sector. Let's act together and let's get our, our bit of that, that pie, because that is an extraordinary opportunity for Australia. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's simply inspiring, Alan, because I look at you know, the little I know about your own, your own uh, career and what you're doing now. And it seems like in the business community, what we're seeing, you know, with the likes of business strategy, helping leaders to perhaps put, put aside that conventional view that they have to be the smartest person in the room mm. or they have to have all the answers. And I think it's inspiring what the scientific community are doing and now what you're doing translating into commercial sense, which are, which are like with, with the likes of Emdetect. Because the way I see it is that by putting aside, you know, the ego-based, you know, I've got the glory, I've got all the answers, and truly collaborating, you know, whether that's with industry, within, within your own organisations, what that does, it seems to be, it opens up this whole new world. Uh, and as I, as I understand, I mean, I sincerely hope that you make some, some significant breakthroughs into dark matter. But if I've heard you talk in the past, you're, you're quite open. You might not do that in your lifetime. But mm -hmm. what sounds like you're doing, you're putting yourself out there into those unknown and edging forward for, for the good of society, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the prospect of, of discovering dark matter uh, in my lifetime is not guaranteed. Uh, certainly, it's, it's an exhilarating ride, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is an incredible journey and what a potential discovery 
to be a part of. I want to reiterate it, you know, by no means am I leading any of it, right? I mean, I am absolutely a, a tiny part of, of a national endeavor of a global activity. And I think the, uh, the challenge we we are faced in so much of our uh, structures within science as well as industry and, and business is that we are we we typically reward on a personal scale, um, but often the contributions only make sense on a, on a macro on a larger, in this case, you know, the entire experiment scale or indeed even larger. Um, so it's, there's a bit of a disconnect between how we evaluate, how we reward. And where the contributions and their impact actually lie, and that, that difference in scale is, is a challenging one. In business, for example, the, the share options are one way to try to tie an individual to the larger success of the organization. Um, that can work. Uh, I think it's fair to say it's, it's not uh, uniquely successful and, and certainly not, not uniformly so. I'm always struck by instances of companies where there is a a team culture and awareness of the, the the success of the greater organization and look it's it's an old story but we've spoken about space and so why not mm-hmm. and the idea of of nasa and what apollo meant and them going mm-hmm. and the mandate across the entire organization such that when even the cleaner was asked what's your job it's to put boots on the moon mm-hmm. i love that right i mean it's mm-hmm. it's probably completely apocryphal and fake but who cares it's a great story because it captures the actual reality of what a shared mission means and i think it's something again space can do but any activity and that's where that's where i'm so excited by new business models the um the for social good business or for purpose business models that is that's very exciting because it resonates with me personally it resonates with a lot of my my friends and, and colleagues and it's a new way to finding the commonality, the collaboration internally, and, and also seeking externally, linking an individual's activities to the success of the whole, and to do it in a way that feels more natural than mm. something like a share option. Don't get me wrong, we all want our shares, but I think being able to also say that you've addressed um, um, a, a, a safer, in, in the case of MDTEC, you know, a, a safer working environment in the construction or mining sector, better operational models or better um, uh, production and, and reduced environmental impacts. I mean, those are all things that resonate greatly. And I think that that's the kind of, of thing we want to be unashamed in saying that this is what our company represents. If you can do that, if you're a leadership team who can clearly articulate what it is that your company is doing better for the world, you're going to find your employees proud of that. And that's something we want to lean into. Oh, I think that what you've just talked through there, you know, it covers all sorts of things from organization-wide culture, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, if we hear a lot about collaboration, there's a lot of buzz terms around collaboration, perhaps with good intent. But I think what you've described there, Alan, is, is a very real picture of what collaboration actually is and could be across both all the different communities we've talked about today. So I think, I think that leaves us to, just to wrap up in terms of business leaders in industry, both private and public, is there any guidance you'd give, either from a from your personal experience, you know, in navigating those unknowns like we talked about, and then perhaps how they could, if they wanted to, to get in touch um, through the university or through the organisation you're working with, the likes of Embitech, 
what is the best way to do those sorts of things? Look, I think uh, the, the leadership teams, the, the members of these companies will be, first and foremost, it's to, to build a structure, a time where they can think freely. And this is the most precious resource that I'm now discovering. It is so hard to structure in true time to, to not even innovate, but just simply to, to think expansively mm. and to, to begin to plan out that, that plunging into the unknown. So I would certainly advocate if they can um, build in an opportunity to think more freely, uh, to build in that time to do so, um, to also understand their own business problems better. And, and I'm always struck by another example where the, they, the, the senior management team are encouraged to get on the, the help desk at their, mm. uh, the, their customers are calling. And then yes. you certainly know where, where your problems are. I think that those are the kinds of, of tactical uh, efforts one can make. I think, however, it is about having uh, this, the conversation and, and storytelling, if you will. And this is something my, my, um, my wife is, uh, Sarah is incredibly um, successful at it, at um, Blue Scope and, and in other instances, but where people are able to share the insights and share the experiences in, in the art of storytelling. And that's a very empowering way to share knowledge as opposed to a list of facts that, yes. Um, yes. you know, is the art of science communication as well. We tell stories, we don't, we don't recite facts. So I think where you can have the senior leadership team telling the stories to one another and also to everyone else within their organization mm. of the importance of what their, their company's intent is. And then, uh, indeed, how that that the appetite for failure uh, to not see it as failure, to see it as innovation, and something that you have learned from and committed to, very clearly committed to what the null result is. What in the case that you don't get the success, mm -hmm. what does that look like, and have have that couched in an action? Because then it's 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 not success or failure. It, it is just another result because you have already action built in the action as a result of that experimentation. So those are all, you know, very, you know, I, I'd be very happy to speak to anyone about uh, this and more. And of course the efforts with MTech as well as the Space Technology Industry Institute. Probably the easiest way is, is just to, uh, to email um, aduffy at swin.edu.au. It's probably the easiest way to get me Although, if I'm being honest, it's to go just to Twitter and hit me up at Astro Duff because I am horrible for how quickly I respond to you on Twitter versus uh, email. It's, it's my secret shame. I'm a social media junkie. There you go. I see you've got quite a following on Twitter, so that's brilliant. And I think so. Today has been an inspiring conversation, Alan. I genuinely, you know, think that the industry have a huge amount to learn, and and I think in a, in a partnership sense. So, looking forward to to hearing you you more across the media and, and in industry and um, really look forward to hearing what, what happens next. Oh, look, thank you so much for, for having me, Andrew. And I, I'm very much excited by what I can learn from uh, these partnerships as well. This is the start of my journey, I hope too, in, a, in a, an exciting commercialization sense. Very good. Thank you, Alan. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Andrew.